Thank you, worship team, for choosing uh, wonderful songs that really reflect our theme for this morning and our passage this morning, which is the grace of God. Well, good morning to all of you. It is a joy to uh, open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if you are joining us for the very first time, uh, I would like to welcome you to San Francisco Bible Church. Uh, we, we love to have guests and visitors, and if you can, please stick around afterwards to give us an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. We're very thankful for you coming and taking the time out to visit us and to worship with us this morning. If you are not a regular here, I want to let you know Pastor Henry has been preaching regularly through the book of Isaiah for a number of months now. And you might be thinking this, man, there is a lot of judgment in the book of Isaiah. And there certainly is. If you've been visiting us for maybe some weeks now, you might be tempted to think, is this all that they teach here at San Francisco Bible Church? Judgment after judgment after judgment? And it really seemed that way, didn't it? It was judgment on Babylon, judgment on Egypt, judgment on the nations, judgment on the whole earth, judgment on Jerusalem, and on and on. And there's, frankly, more judgment to come as we continue in the book of Isaiah. But if you think about it, judgment has to do with justice. It has to do with justice. If a criminal commits a crime, a judge will pronounce judgment upon the criminal to suffer the consequences of his transgressions. That's what we call justice. And we understand that. In the same way, the Bible says this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. It says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, God is also a judge. According to scripture, he is the judge of the world. And therefore, we, he must do what is right, what is just. After all, what kind of a God would he be if he did not uphold a holy standard of justice? And that's what really we've been seeing in the book of Isaiah. We've been seeing the justice of holy God. God is bringing judgment upon all those who have sinned against him, and he must judge them because he is a just and a righteous judge. He has to uphold his holy standard of righteousness. He has to punish the wicked and the sinful. And I know in our culture, in our day and age, that kind of a message doesn't really sit well with a lot of people. Judgment, hellfire, brimstone, destruction, condemnation. In our world, people just want to hear about love and acceptance. And yet that's what we find in the scriptures, particularly as we've been learning in the book of Isaiah. God must punish the wicked and the sinful. But this morning, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're not going to focus on God's justice or his judgment. Instead, this morning, we will focus on God's grace. His grace and his justice are related. If you think about it this way, justice has to do with getting what you deserve. A criminal commits some act of violence. He deserves punishment. That's justice. Getting what you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, has to do with getting what you don't deserve. Both are equally important. But this morning, we want to hone our gaze upon God's grace. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. And I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your version. Matthew 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house 
who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before your holy word this morning, we pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Lord, as we encounter this parable of our Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to reflect upon your wonderful grace. And I want to ask specifically, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who do not yet know you, who do not yet have a relationship with you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see and to understand their desperation as sinners and to see the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of grace. Lord, would you cause them to believe? We thank you for this word. We commit our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, the parable is, it's actually taught because of an incident that had occurred. What is this incident? Well, it begins in chapter 19, the previous chapter. A rich young man comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must he do to inherit eternal life? And some of you might recall this story. Jesus tells this rich young man, he says, well, you must keep the commandments, referring to the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. And what does this rich young man say to Jesus? He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? That's in chapter 19, verse 20. So here is this rich young man. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, well, you know, keep the commandments. He says, I've done them. What else is there? I've, I've faithfully kept the commandments. So here's a young person, a young man, who thinks he's in a good standing with God. What do I still lack, he says. Now Jesus, knowing that this young man is very rich, he says to him in verse 21, Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
Now, how does the rest of the story go? He couldn't do it. This rich young man could not do it. He was too rich. He loved his riches too much. And we read in verse 22 of chapter 19, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He could not sell everything, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Now at this point, after this young man walks away, it really presents a wonderful teaching opportunity for Jesus. And so he takes advantage of that. And he uses the occasion to teach about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, we've just witnessed this young man who could not sell everything, give it away, and come follow me. How difficult it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says it's easier for a camel, which is a very large animal, to go through the eye of a needle. If you know, a needle has a little tiny hole on one end for the thread to go through. That's the eye. And Jesus says, listen, it's easier for a large animal like this, like a camel, to go through the eye of that needle than for a rich man, a rich person, to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you think about that, it's just a really fancy way of saying it is impossible. There is no way a camel can fit through the eye of a needle. And the point here is, if that's easier, then how impossible must it be for a rich person to enter into God's kingdom? And we understand this. In fact, Jesus has taught elsewhere, you cannot love both God and money. You can't serve two masters. Now, at this point, something something very interesting happens. Peter speaks up, okay? And whenever Peter speaks up, it's probably not going to be good, all right? Peter has developed somewhat of a reputation as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, meaning whenever he opens his mouth, he usually says something that is a little wrong, and Jesus has to rebuke him afterwards. And this is no exception. So here's what... Peter says, take a look at chapter 19, verse 27. He says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And it's as though you can just imagine Peter is patting himself on the back because Jesus has just said, it is so difficult, it is impossible for a rich person who loves his riches to hold on to those riches and still follow Christ. That's impossible. And now Peter says, well, Lord, we left everything for you. So what are we gonna get? And this really sets the backdrop for our passage this morning. This is the backdrop for this parable. And as Jesus listens and hears this comment from Peter, he doesn't waste any opportunity to teach them. And he uses a parable, a wonderful parable to teach them. And perhaps at this point, Jesus can sense this air of pride amongst his disciples. Maybe it's an air of arrogance coming from them. You, you might recall It was not uncommon for the disciples to say, hey, which one of us are the greatest? And they would kind of fight about it. You remember James and John, their mother, came to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, can you put one of each of my sons, one on your left and one on your right in your kingdom? My sons are pretty great. Right? Kind of typical of parents, right? Again, Jesus can tell his disciples aren't getting it. 
And so he tells this parable. Let's walk through this parable. And as we do so, we will observe five attributes of God displayed in the parable that highlight God's salvation. Five attributes of God. And right from the outset, I want us to see these are five attributes of God. It has nothing to do with people. It has nothing to do with us. In fact, this parable is all about God. And really, that's the point. The point is, it's all about God. Five attributes of God displayed in the parable that highlight God's salvation. Number one, the first attribute that we see is God's sovereign initiative. God's sovereign initiative. Take a look with me at verses one and two of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now notice here that the master of the house went out early in the morning to hire laborers. He needed them for his vineyard. Now it's likely that he went out pretty early at dawn, which would be around 6 a.m. In ancient days, that was the beginning of their day, 6 a.m. Now we don't know if it is planting season for the vineyard, or maybe it's harvesting time. But we do know that in ancient times, vineyards made for some tough work. Vineyards were often on hillsides. So just think about that. See, nowadays you go to Napa, you see these beautiful vineyards, perhaps they're in the valleys, they're in these nice areas. But a lot of vineyards in ancient times were actually on the hillsides. What does that mean? That means workers would have to come and dig out the hillside to create and build these vineyards. And if they didn't have very fertile soil, what would they have to do? They'd have to go to where the fertile soil was found, which would be the valleys. Go down below, get the soil, and then transport it up these hills. So you can see it was tough work. And vineyards would require a good amount of help. And even if it wasn't planting season, perhaps it was harvest season. And even in the harvest time, they would require a lot of workers because at times the harvest period would be very, very short and they would need to immediately get, bring in all the harvest so they would require a lot of help. So it was not uncommon for certain landowners to go into town and hire laborers. And we read here, that this landowner, this master of the house, went out early in the morning to hire laborers. These are not your typical employees, all right? These were temporary day laborers here. In fact, this is not too foreign to us in our day. You guys ever go to perhaps the industrial parts of town or you go to Home Depot and you drive around there, right around the parking area, you'll find a group of people standing around. And what are they doing? They're waiting for work. They're waiting for maybe a construction company or somebody who needs extra help to hire them. So even in our day, in our culture, we do have day laborers. And that was no different in Jesus's time. There were these temporary day laborers and this landowner goes out and he goes and hires some of them to work for the day. Now, In Jesus' time, there were many who survived as day laborers. Why? Because day laborers were just regular people who were not very skilled. They weren't skilled in a particular trade. In fact, they were probably at the bottom of the social economic scale. And so they'll do whatever job comes their way. That's pretty much it. Back then, many of them were close to being beggars. They worked job to job, day to day. If someone would hire them, wonderful. And that's what they hoped for. And because they were at the bottom of the social economic scale, many of these workers were actually poorly treated. They were probably underpaid. Now, that's not the case in our passage. Because this master agrees to pay them a denarius for a day of work. Now, if you have a little footnote in your passage, like my Bible does, it tells you that a denarius was a day's wage. But in fact, some ancient sources tell us that a denarius was actually not just any day's wage, it was particularly a day's wage for soldiers. Now, soldiers are not at the bottom of society. 
They were paid. Roman soldiers were paid decently well. In other words, in this situation, this master, he's a pretty good master. He's actually agreeing to pay these day laborers pretty well, a soldier's day wage. But what we observe here that's very interesting is that the master is the one who goes out to hire workers. That's different from our day and age where most of you, if you guys look for jobs, you submit your resume. You fill out the application. You kind of have to take the initiative first. Now, I know there are some uh, agencies that will go and help uh, scout for work, uh, for workers, things like that. But in this situation, this master goes out, he hires workers, and who is this master? Remember, in the beginning of verse 1, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master. So Jesus is telling this parable. This parable has to do with the kingdom of heaven. So who would be the master of the kingdom of heaven. This is God the Father. This is God. And what we observe here is God's sovereign initiative, his sovereign initiative. In salvation, God is the one who takes the initiative to draw people to salvation. It says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it is God who seeks and saves the lost. So often in the church, we, a lot of times we tend to think of people who are seekers as those who are interested in Christianity, right? Oh, we have seekers visiting our church. Who are these seekers? These are people who are interested in Christianity. They want to learn more about the Christian faith, but they are not Christians. And we tend to think, oh, well, you know, those are the seekers in the church. But the reality is, in this world, there is one main seeker. And who is that? God. God is the primary seeker. He seeks people. He is this master who goes out and he seeks the day laborers. Remember, God is the one described in scripture as the shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep to go and seek out the one lost sheep. The master goes out to look for workers. He brings them into his vineyard In other words, nobody can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless God draws them in. And I know a lot of times when we think about our own experience becoming Christians, we tend to think, oh, you know, I made a decision. Now, I'm not against that. In fact, we highly encourage it. When you go out to share the gospel with others, when you go out and evangelize, you ought to call people to make a choice. You ought to extend the call of God, which is that they need to turn from sin and believe in Christ. That is appropriate. But see, for many of us, that was our experience, and that's the way we think about how it all happened. I made a choice. And the reality is, no. No. God took the first step. He is the initiator. If God never called for us and drew us to himself, we would never believe. We would still be lost. We are not smart enough. We are not good enough to figure this out. It is only because of God's goodness in being the initiator that he drew us to himself. And as we grow as Christians and we study his word, that's what we realize. Wow, that's what happened to me. That's how I became a Christian. That's why all of a sudden I looked at Jesus and I cared about him. I found him to be wonderful instead of thinking, oh, he's boring. And if God doesn't do that, none of us would be saved. He is the great initiator. You see, salvation is always God's initiative. If God, it is God who seeks to save the lost. And that's what we observe first and foremost here. Not only does God sovereignly initiate to save the lost, but secondly, number two, he relentlessly pursues the lost. Number two is God's relentless pursuit. God's relentless pursuit. Take a look at verses three to six with me. Jesus says, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went 
going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. See, he goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m. to find laborers. And according to this passage, it says, by the third hour at 9 a.m., he goes out again to find more laborers. And then at the sixth hour, which is noon, he goes out again. And then at the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon, he goes out again every three hours. And then it says that even when the workday is almost over, the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., the end of the day is 6 o'clock, 5 p.m., he still goes out and looks for laborers. See, in the same way, God's pursuit of the lost keeps going and going and going. God will keep pursuing the lost even until the last hour of this age. Jesus tells us that God's pursuit of us is like a woman who loses a very precious coin. And what does she do? You guys remember that? What does she do? She loses this most valuable, most precious coin, and she turns her entire house upside down to find that coin. And then after she finds it, she throws a huge celebration. That's God. God is a relentless pursuer of the lost. And he keeps going out, and he keeps going out, and he keeps going out. That's how much God loves us, and that is his relentless pursuit of us. And the greatest demonstration of his love is none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, we were all lost in sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who walks this planet is a sinner. And the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. Meaning, every one of us, there is not a person here who is exempt. Every one of us deserves eternal death, eternal condemnation. Why? Because in our sin, we have transgressed the holiness of God. God is so holy that he can have nothing to do with even the smallest ounce of sin. That is our predicament. That's what the Bible says. Our sin is so heinous to God that according to scripture, it deserves an eternal punishment in hell. That's how bad it is for us. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross. Why? To be our substitute. To take our sin and to nail it to the cross and to absorb all of the wrath of God for sin, for our sin, so that we don't have to experience his wrath one bit. That is the beautiful news of the gospel And the Bible says that, you know, it's very rare that a person would lay down his life for another person. But perhaps for a friend, someone might do that. However, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the greatest demonstration of God's love. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's God's pursuit of his people. His pursuit of his people is unrelenting. And it says in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you look into this world. There is a lot of wickedness in this world, isn't there? I mean, you just turn on the news, go onto the web, immediately you are confronted by the wickedness and the evil of this world. And according to Peter, God does not wish for a single soul to perish. His love is so immense. 
His pursuit of the lost is relentless. He wants all to reach repentance. And I have to pause here, and I really need to say this. If there are any of you here this morning, and maybe you have not personally received Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, let me tell you, even now, God is kind to you. And I know that because even now, he's pursuing you. The fact that you're listening to this message this morning, the fact that you're sitting here, means that God is still pursuing you. You're not dead yet. You're not experiencing the wrath of God currently. You're here. The fact that you're hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, the fact that you are seeing the love of God displayed in this passage of Scripture this morning means that God is still pursuing you. He wants you in his kingdom. This is our God. He's not waiting for resumes. He's not waiting for you to submit an application. He seeks the lost. He goes and he goes and he continues to go out, even at the last hour, to pursue the lost. A third attribute of God displayed here, number three, is his willing compassion. God's willing compassion. Verses six and seven, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. This is the last hour. The master goes into the, into the town again, to the marketplace, and he finds more laborers standing there. And what's very interesting here is that he has this exchange with them. The master talks to these laborers. He asks them, why, do you, why are you here? Why are you standing here idle all day? And when it says standing here idle, it doesn't mean that they were lazy. Sometimes we think that way, right? It doesn't mean they were lazy. It just simply means that they were standing there idle, having nothing to do because no one hired them. Nobody hired them. Why are you standing here with nothing to do all day? And they tell this master, it's because we couldn't find work. No one was willing to take us. And what is so striking about this master is his willingness to take them. I mean, first of all, he cares enough to ask them about their predicament. Why are you guys standing here all day? And then, not only that, but he actually takes them in. I mean, there's no time left in the day. There's only one hour. This is the 11th hour. In an hour, the day is over. The shift is done. We have to consider, if that is the case, if it's the 11th hour, why are these laborers still standing there? I mean, if you've been waiting all day, and nobody has hired you, why would you still be standing there? Wouldn't you go, you know what? I'm just going to go home early today. Right? Isn't that what normal people would do? The fact that they're still out here at the 11th hour when the day is almost over tells us they were probably desperate. They're still hoping. Even with one hour of work, that's better than nothing, anything. They're still hoping to be hired. And it also suggests to us that these individuals, these laborers who are still left at the end of the day, they were probably not the cream of the crop. All of the good workers, perhaps the healthy workers, the strong workers had already been hired. They probably weren't the strongest. Maybe they were older and they couldn't do as much. For whatever reason, nobody wanted them. Essentially, they were the bottom of the barrel. They were the leftovers. Now, a little secret of mine is I like Panda Express. Any of you guys like Panda Express? <laughs> I love it. I know it's very Americanized Chinese food, but I love it. 
all right? Nobody makes a better orange chicken than they do, all right? It's, it's absolutely delicious, all right? The outside batter is nice and crispy. The meat on the inside is just nice, tender, and juicy, and then it's just lightly glazed with a sweet and sour and a little spicy sauce. Oh, it's so good, all right? Sorry, I know it's lunchtime. <laughs> now, have you ever gone at the end of the day? I know they close at nine o'clock. <laughs> so if you go at the end of the day, what's left? It's not crispy anymore. This wonderful chicken has been sitting there for quite a long time. It's soggy, it's soft. It really is the leftovers, right? They're about to throw it out. Not a good time to go then, all right? That's the bottom of the barrel. These laborers here, they're the leftovers. They're not really useful. They're not the strongest. They are the bottom of the barrel that nobody wanted. You can call them the rejects. And it is here that we meet the incredible willingness and the incredible compassion of God. Here is this master. He wants them. He is willing to take them in. There's only one hour of work left. What's the point? And yet he says, come on in. It's not too late. I'll take you also. The workday is pretty much over. Not a problem. Come on in. You see, you can be the rejects of society. You can be the bottom of the barrel. You can be the least desirable in the community, the leftovers, the leftovers that nobody wants. Some of you know I tutor kids in math and reading. In fact, yesterday... I stayed after at the end of class, and I was talking with one of our students. He's in middle school, and he was having a lot of trouble with his work, with his classwork. And he kept saying, I'm so angry. I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to understand it. I'm never going to pass my test. And I tried to encourage him. He's actually really, really smart, and he's doing really, really well. He's like two years above his grade level. That's the work that he's doing, all right? Um, and I'm trying to, you know, calm him down and encourage him. And as he was leaving, he ma made this comment to me. He said, I'm always angry. And I asked him, why are you always angry? And he said to me, because I hate it at school. People always make fun of me. Now, bullying is very real, right? I can understand, perhaps, how he feels. And I tried to encourage him. Well, here, I want to let you know, nobody's making fun of you. And I think you're really smart, and I think you're doing really well. See, you can be the one that nobody likes. You can be the rejects of society. You can be the bottom of the barrel. What is the point? The point is, God still wants it's not too late. His love is not like the love of the world. His love doesn't look at how you look on the outside. His love is not based on, do I think you're cool? No. It doesn't matter. Last hour, come anyway. Nobody wants you, I'll take. This is a beautiful picture of the compassion of God. God knows no distinctions. God loves each one of us equally. What a wonderful, beautiful compassion illustrated here for us. This takes us to number four, a fourth attribute of God, and that is God's equal salvation. God's equal salvation. 
Verse eight, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And now we start to really see one of the main points of this passage, which was stated back in chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus will say it again at the end of our passage. So the last will be first and the first last. And here the master instructs the foreman to gather the laborers. It's time to pay them. It's the end of the day, 6 p.m. And remember that these laborers lived on uh, day-to-day wages that they earned from their work. Their lives depended on it. Getting paid at the end of the day was really, really vital for them. Otherwise, they would starve and perhaps their families would not have enough. And it would be quite wrong to take advantage of these laborers. So even in in the Jewish Old Testament law, it is actually required that day laborers be paid at the end of the day. God understood this was their livelihood. Do not rob them of that. Do not withhold their wages. Pay them at the end of the day. And we read in verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. See, God didn't send the first people who came to work for him to get their pay first. It's reversed. The last ones, the ones who came at the end, the the last hour, they are the ones who get paid first. And what's very interesting is each one of them received a denarius. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The workers only worked an hour. They worked one hour and they get paid a full day's work, 12 hours of work for one hour. This is amazing. I mean, how would you feel if perhaps in your workplace you saw a fellow coworker who received a raise and it was a, a raise that was incredibly large, 12 times what you're making? That's pretty good, right? And here, these laborers who worked one hour, they're paid an incredible amount, a full denarius for one hour of work. And now all of these other workers, remember the ones who started in the beginning of the day? They're watching this. And what are they thinking? Sweet. I worked 12 hours today. 12 times of that, whoa. I'm good for the whole week. I'm good for a few weeks, right? Maybe that's what they're thinking. And actually, in fact, we know that's what they're thinking because we get to verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. They didn't get it. They did not get what they thought they would receive. Instead, they get exactly the same amount as what the others received, one denarius, and in fact, it was what they had agreed upon in the very beginning. So how do you expect them to feel? Pretty upset, right? And believe me, they're upset. They're so upset, they're not even going to hide it. You know, you think... People might just start to talk behind the master's back. No, they don't do that. They go right to the master. Take a look, verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Don't you see? There is a great injustice We've worked 12 hours bearing the load, bearing the burden. It was hot out. We're sunburnt. And these guys, they come in, they work one hour. What in the world are you doing? They are so upset. They grumble right to the master because they think they deserve more. How could these people be on equal standing with us? And this is where 
we see the equality of, sa- of salvation. You see, it doesn't matter how much you've been serving God. It doesn't matter how great the sacrifice you've made to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you've done in service to Christ. Everyone gets the same salvation. Now, to be clear, believers will receive rewards based on what they've done for the Lord. We know that. The Bible says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and what's going to happen is Christ will judge us based on our deeds. And we know that on that day, there will be a giving of rewards, a receiving of rewards, and for those who perhaps did not live fully in accordance with what God desired, there could be a loss of rewards. Yes, that is true. That will happen one day. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the equality of salvation for all believers, no matter what you've done. And we know that because the occasion for this parable, remember why Jesus is telling this parable to begin with? The occasion for this parable was that Peter thought that, hey, Lord, we've given up so much to follow you. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, Peter was wondering what they would get for making the big sacrifice to follow Christ. Jesus, we've suffered for you. We've sacrificed for you. Now what do we get? And Jesus' answer here to Peter and to his disciples, is very simple. You get salvation, like everybody else. You get salvation. Salvation is the greatest gift. It doesn't matter how hard you have served God. It doesn't matter if if perhaps you as a believer will die of old age, or maybe if you die of martyrdom. It doesn't matter. We will all share in the same salvation In the end, we are equal. God's salvation is equal. And this is God's equal salvation. Some people will come into the kingdom perhaps at a very young age. And they will spend a whole lifetime serving Christ faithfully. And then others might spend their whole lifetime fighting Christ until the last day, their their last breath, when they are laying down on their deathbed and they give their life to Christ. They choose to follow Jesus at the very last minute and they've done nothing for Christ. It doesn't matter. We will share in the same salvation. And praise God for this great salvation. It doesn't matter. We will all experience God's equal salvation. This takes us to our last and final attribute, number five, God's Boundless grace. God's boundless grace. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend. I love that. They are in his face, complaining, grumbling. And he says, friend. Even his rebuke is full of kindness. It's a gentle rebuke. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? God has not shown any injustice. God has been perfectly fair to grant the same salvation to all who believe, no matter how much they have sacrificed. And as we read on, verses 14 and 15, he says to them, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Here are two rhetorical questions that are very telling. The first one he asks is, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? You see, this really is the lesson. The lesson is that it is all God's grace All along. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's saying, salvation is mine. Am I not allowed to do 
with, with what belongs to me however I please? Who are you to say this is unfair? You think about it. Many of you work, and many of you maybe are younger, but one day you will work, and you will earn a living, and you will make money. Do you not have the freedom to choose how you want to spend what is yours? We understand that. What belongs to God? Forgiveness. Salvation. He is the one who sent his son to die on the cross. Has he no right to freely give as he pleases? That's the lesson. It's a lesson about God's grace. To their culture and even to ours, we're not used to this because we're used to a system of merit. You get what you deserve. You work hard, you get rewards. You toil and you sweat, and then you'll be able to climb the corporate ladder. You put in the work, and then you will reap what you sow. Isn't that the way our world thinks? And that's the way their world thought as well. And this was the way that even the disciples thought. And it was clear from Peter's question, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? What are we going to get? They completely missed the point. The point is salvation is impossible for us to achieve. It has been and always will be a gift. A gift of God. And that's why earlier, back in chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus had already said this, remember? He said, with man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. What's the point? You can't save yourself. Salvation is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation from sins is a work of God granted to us as a gift. And you see, many in our day, much like these disciples, much like the apostle Peter, many of us have a meritorious mindset about salvation. We think about salvation as performance-based because we live in a performance-based culture. You have to earn everything. But the gospel of Christ is simply this. You cannot. You cannot earn it. You will never deserve it. Favor with God Salvation from eternal condemnation, forgiveness of sins is always going to be a gift of God. The truth is, forgiveness of sins and entrance into the kingdom of God, becoming a part of God's family, has always been a work of grace. It is by grace alone. Sometimes people wonder, well, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved. And some people think, oh, well, the people in the Old Testament, well, they didn't have Jesus yet, so they were saved by following the law, obeying God's Old Testament law. No. The writer of Hebrews tells us, the people of faith, they were saved by their faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been and will always be by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace by grace alone. And there's another question that he raises here. It's another rhetorical question. And it's a wonderfully fitting question. The question is, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? It literally says, is your eye bad because I am good? Now, what does that mean? Is your eye bad because I am good? The bad eye simply means when you look upon God and what he has done that is good, you see it badly. 
It's another way of saying you're jealous. Do you begrudge my generosity? And you see, in this rhetorical question, there are two worlds colliding. What are the two worlds colliding? It is a work and effort-based world versus grace. And the works-based mentality will always conflict with grace. And I believe that's what verse 16, the last verse of our passage, is all about. It says, Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Those who are first according to this world system, the people who seem to have it all together based on their lifestyle, based on their deeds, how they live their lives, they seem to be so righteous, they will be last because salvation is not based on your works. But those who are last, meaning those who are utterly broken, they've come to their end. There's nothing left for them. All they can bank on is the kindness of God. That's all they have. Those are the people who are last according to our world, but according to Jesus, they will be first. As we close, I want to encourage us very easy as Christians to forget that our salvation has always been by grace. It's so easy to get into the routine of being a Christian. You go to church, maybe you give to the offering, you bring your kids to fellowship, you read your Bible, you do your devotions, and we think, oh, we're good. Listen, that's not why. Salvation has always been and will always be by God's grace. He alone is good. We didn't do it. We didn't work for it. We never deserved it. And I hope we will never say to God, but Lord, we've worked all day bearing the burden Being a Christian for you, the scorching heat of the sun burning my scalp, we are being persecuted. Lord, what do I get? May we never, ever say that or think that or even feel that. I want to draw your attention to the paragraph right after our passage. I think this is a fitting way to close. Verse 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That is what's about to happen in just a short period of time. And he will be raised on the third day. By grace. By this grace, the cross and the resurrection, we are saved. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded so poignantly through your word this morning that none of us are good enough. Left to ourselves, we are only but a pile of sin deserving of your punishment, deserving of your wrath. And yet you looked upon us with favor. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. What a pleasure. What a joy. 
Lord, may we never lose that sense of love and appreciation for how you rescued us out of our hopelessness. Always cause the good news of Christ to move us. And may we live out in faith each and every day the proclamation that Jesus Christ is great. We have been saved by grace and we will enter into eternity by your grace, not because of anything we've done. Lord, remind us even as we go from here, the rest of this day, the rest of the week, that you have shown your great love and we are the recipients of this great pleasure. Father, I also want to pray for any here who have listened to this word and they have not yet received Christ to be their Lord and their Savior, their Master. I pray that you would cause them to repent and create in them faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.